0: This performance is a co-production of LoudLit.org and Literal Systems. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain Performed by Mark Devine Chapter 23 Well... All day him and the king was hard at it, rigging up a stage and a curtain and a row of candles for footlights, and that night the house was jammed full of men in no time. When the place couldn't hold no more, the duke, he quit tending the door and went around the back way and come on to the stage and stood up before the curtain and made a little speech and praised up this tragedy and said it was the most thrillingest one that ever was. And so he went on a bragging about the tragedy and about Edmund Keane, the elder, which was to play the main principal part in it, and at last, when he'd got everybody's expectations up high enough, he rolled up the curtain, and the next minute the king come a-prancing out on all fours, naked, and he was painted all over, ring-streaked and striped, all sorts of colors, as splendid as a rainbow, and... But never mind the rest of his outfit. It was just wild, but it was awful funny. The people most killed themselves laughing, and when the king got done capering and capered off behind the scenes, They roared and clapped and stormed and ha-ha'd till he come back and done it over again. And after that, they made him do it another time. Well, it would make a cow laugh to see the shines that old idiot cut. Then the Duke, he lets the curtain down and bows to the people and says the great tragedy will be performed only two nights more on accounts of pressing London engagements where the seats is all sold already for it in Drury Lane And then he makes them another bow and says if he has succeeded in pleasing them and instructing them, he will be deeply obliged if they will mention it to their friends and get them to come and see it. Twenty people sings out, What? Is it over? Is that all? The Duke says yes. Then there was a fine time. Everybody sings out, Sold! And rose up mad. And was a-going for that stage and them tragedians. But a big, fine-looking man jumps up on a bench and shouts, Hold on! Just a word, gentlemen. They stop to listen. We are sold. Mighty badly sold. But we don't want to be the laughingstock of this whole town, I reckon, and never hear the last of this thing as long as we live. No. What we want is to go out of here quiet and talk this show up and sell the rest of the town. Then we'll all be in the same boat. Ain't that sensible? Well, you bet it is. The judge is right, everybody sings out. Well, all right, then. Not a word about any cell. Go along home and advise everybody to come and see the tragedy. Next day, you couldn't hear nothing around that town but how splendid that show was. House was jammed again that night, and we sold this crowd the same way. When me and the king and the duke got home to the raft, we all had a supper, and by and by, about midnight... They made Jim and me back her out and float her down the middle of the river and fetch her in and hide her about two mile below the town. The third night the house was crammed again, and they weren't newcomers this time, but people that was at the show the other two nights. I stood by the duke at the door, and I see that every man that went in had his pockets bulging or something muffled up under his coat, and I see it weren't no perfumery neither, not by a long sight. I smelt sickly eggs by the barrel, and rotten cabbages and such things. And if I know the signs of a dead cat being around, and I bet I do, there was sixty-four of them went in. I shoved in there for a minute, but it was too various for me. I couldn't stand it. Well, when the place couldn't hold no more people, the Duke, he give a fellow a quarter, and told him to tend the door for him a minute, and then he started around for the stage door, I after him. But the minute we turned the corner and was in the dark, he says, Walk fast now till you get away from the houses and then shin for the raft like the dickens was after you. I'd done it, and he done the same. We struck the raft at the same time, and in less than two seconds we was gliding downstream, all dark and still, and edging towards the middle of the river. Nobody saying a word. I reckon the poor king was in for a gaudy time of it with the audience, but nothing of the sort. Pretty soon he crawls out from under the wigwam and says, "'Well,' How'd the old thing pan out this time, Duke? He hadn't been uptown at all. We never showed a light till we was about ten mile below the village. Then we lit up and had a supper, and the king and the duke fairly laughed their bones loose over the way they'd served them people. The duke says, Greenhorns, flatheads. I knew the first house would keep mum and let the rest of the town get roped in, and I knew they'd lay for us the third night and consider it was their turn now. Well, it is their turn, and I'd give something to know how much they'd take for it. I would just like to know how they're putting in their opportunity. They can turn it into a picnic if they want to. They brought plenty provisions. Them rapscallions took in $465 in that three nights. I never see money hauled in by the wagon load like that before. By and by when they was asleep and snoring, Jim says, don't it surprise you the way dem kings carries on, Huck? No, I says, it don't. Why don't it, Huck? Well, it don't because it's in the breed. I reckon they're all alike. But, Huck, these kins are on is regular rapscallions. That's just what they is, they's regular rapscallions. Well, that's what I'm a sayin'. All kings is mostly rapscallions, as far as I can make out. Is that so? You read about them once, you'll see. Look at Henry VIII. This and is a Sunday school superintendent to him. And look at Charles II, and Louis XIV, and Louis Fifteen and James Second and Edward II, and Richard III, and forty more, besides all them Saxon heptarchies that used to rip around, so, in old times, and raise cane. My, you oughta seen old Henry VIII when he was in bloom. He was a blossom. He used to marry a new wife every day, and chop off her head next morning and he would do it just as indifferent as if he was ordering up eggs. Fetch up Nell Gwyn, he says. They fetch her up. Next morning, chop off her head, and they chop it off. Fetch up Jane Shore, he says, and up she comes. Next morning, chop off her head, and they chop it off. Ring up Fair Rosamond. Fair Rosamond answers the bell. Next morning, chop off her head. And he made every one of them tell him a tale every night, and he kept that up till he had hogged a thousand and one tails that way. And then he put them all in a book and called it Domesday Book, which was a good name and stated the case. You don't know kings, Jim, but I know them. And this old rip of Arn is one of the cleanest I've struck in history. Well, Henry, he takes a notion he wants to get up some trouble with this country. How does he go at it? Give notice? Give the country a show? No. All of a sudden he heaves all the tea in Boston Harbor overboard and whacks out a Declaration of Independence, and dares them to come on. That was his style. He never give anybody a chance. He had suspicions of his father, the Duke of Wellington. Well, what did he do? Ask him to show up? No. Drowned him in a butt of mamsie like a cat. Suppose people left money laying around where he was. What did he do? He collared it. Suppose he contracted to do a thing, and you paid him, and didn't sit down there and see that he'd done it? What did he do? He always done the other thing. "'S'pose he opened up his mouth. What then? "'If he didn't shut it up powerful quick, he'd lose a lie every time. "'That's the kind of a bug Henry was. "'And if we'd a had him along stead of our kings, "'he'd a fooled that town a heap worse than Arn done. "'I don't say that Arn is lambs, because they ain't, "'when you come right down to the cold facts. "'But they ain't nothing to that old ram, anyway. "'All I say is, kings is kings, and you gotta make allowances. "'Take them all around. They're a mighty ornery lot.' It's the way they're raised. But this one do smell so like the nation, Huck. Well, they all do, Jim. We can't help the way a king smells. History don't tell no way. Now, the Duke, he's a tolerable but likely man in some ways. Yes, a Duke's different, but not very different. This one's a middling hard lot for a Duke. When he's drunk, there ain't no near-sighted man could tell him from a king. Well, anyways, I don't hanker for no more em them, Huck. This is all I can stand. It's the way I feel too, Jim. But we've got them on our hands and we've got to remember what they are and make allowances. Sometimes I wish we could hear of a country that's out of kings. What was the use to tell Jim these weren't real kings and dukes? It wouldn't have done no good. And besides, it was just as I said. You couldn't tell them from the real kind. I went to sleep and Jim didn't call me when it was my turn. He often done that. When I waked up just at daybreak, he was sitting there with his head down betwixt his knees, moaning and mourning to himself. I didn't take notice nor let on. I know what it was about. He was thinking about his wife and his children away up yonder, and he was low and homesick, because he had never been away from home before in his life. And I do believe he cared just about as much for his people as white folks does for theirs. It don't seem natural, but I reckon it's so. He was often moaning and mourning that way nights, when he judged I was asleep and saying, "Poor little Elizabeth, poor little Johnny, it's mighty hard. I speck I ain't goin' to see you no more, no more.'" He was a mighty good nigger, Jim was. But this time I somehow got to talking to him about his wife and his young ones, and by and by he says, "'What makes me feel so bad this time is because I hear something over yonder on the bank like a whack or a slam while ago.' and it mind me of the time I treat my little Elizabeth so ornery. She weren't only about four year old, and she took to the scarlet fever and had a powerful rough spell. But she got well, and one day she was a-standin' round, and I says to her, I says, Shut the door. She never done it, just stood there, kind of smiling up at me. It make me mad. And I says again, mighty loud, I says, Don't you hear me? Shut the door. She just stood there the same way, kind of smiling up, I was a-biling, I says, I lay, I make you mine, and with that I fetched her a slap side the head that saw her a-sprawling, then I went into the other room, and it's gone about ten minutes, and when I come back, there was that door standin' open yet, and that child standin' most right in it, a looking down and mourning, and the tears running down, my, but I was mad, and I was gwine for the child, but just then, it was a door that opened in it, just then. Long come to win and slam it too, behind the child, kablam, and my land. The child never move. My breath most hop out of me, and I feel so, so, I don't know how I feel. I crope out, all a-tremblin', and crope around, and open the door, easy and slow, and poke my head in behind the child, soft and still, and all of a sudden I says, pow, just as loud as I could yell. She never budge. Oh, Huck, I bust out a-crying and grab her up in my arms and say, Oh, de poor little thing, the Lord God Almighty forgive poor old Jim, cause he never gwine to forgive hisself as long as he live. Oh, she was plumb, deaf and dumb, Huck, plumb, deaf and dumb, and I've been a-treating her so. Chapter 24 Next day, towards night, we laid up under a little willow towhead head out in the middle, where there was a village on each side of the river, and the Duke and the King begun to lay out a plan for work in them towns. Jim, he spoke to the Duke, and said he hoped it wouldn't take but a few hours, because it got mighty heavy and tiresome to him when he had to lay all day in the wigwam tied with a rope. You see, when we left him all alone, we had to tie him, because if anybody happened on to him all by himself and not tied, it wouldn't look much like he was a runaway nigger, you know. So the Duke said it was kind of hard to have to lay roped all day, and he'd cipher out some way to get around it. He was uncommon bright, the Duke was, and soon he struck it. He dressed Jim up in King Lear's outfit. It was a long curtain calico gown and a white horsehair wig and whiskers. And then he took his theater paint and painted Jim's face and hands and ears and neck all over a dead, dull, solid blue, like a man that's been drowned in nine days. Blamed if he weren't the horriblest-looking outrage I ever see. Then the Duke took and wrote out a sign on a shingle, so "Sick Arab," but harmless when not out of his head, and he nailed that shingle to a lath, and stood the lath up four or five foot in front of the wigwam. Jim was satisfied. He said it was a sight better than lying tied a couple of years every day and trembling all over every time there was a sound. The Duke told him to make himself free and easy, and if anybody ever come meddling around he must hop out of the wigwam and carry on a little and fetch a howl or two like a wild beast, and he reckoned they would lie it out and leave him alone, which was sound enough judgment. But you take the average man, and he wouldn't wait for him to howl. Why, he didn't only look like he was dead, he looked considerable more than that. These rapscallions wanted to try the nonsuch again because there was so much money in it, but they judged it wouldn't be safe because maybe the news might have worked along down by this time. They couldn't hit no project that suited exactly, so at last the Duke said he'd lay off and work his brains an hour or two and see if he couldn't put up something on the Arkansas village. And the king, he allowed he would drop over to Tother Village without any plan, but just trust in Providence to lead him to the profitable way, meaning the devil, I reckon. We had all bought store clothes where we stopped last, and now the king put his on, and he told me to put mine on. i done it, of course. The king's duds was all black, and he did look real swell and starchy. I never knowed how clothes could change a body before. Why, before, he looked like the orneriest old rip that ever was. But now, when he'd take off his new white beaver and make a bow and do a smile, he looked that grand and good and pious that you'd say he had walked right out of the ark and maybe was old Leviticus himself. Jim cleaned up the canoe, and I got my paddle ready. There was a big steamboat laying at the shore way up under the point, "'About three mile above the town, "'been there a couple of hours taking on freight,' says the king. "'Seeing how I'm dressed, I reckon maybe I better arrive down from St. Louis "'or Cincinnati or some other big place. "'Go for the steamboat, Huckleberry. "'We'll come down to the village on her.' "'I didn't have to be ordered twice to go and take a steamboat ride. "'I fetched the shore a half a mile above the village "'and then went scooting along the bluff bank in the easy water.' "'Pretty soon we come to a nice, innocent-looking young country Jake "'settin' on a log swabbing the sweat off of his face for it was powerful warm weather, "'and he had a couple big carpet bags by him. "'Runner nose in shore,' says the king. "'I done it.' "'Where you bound for, young man?' "'Oh, for the steamboat, going to Orleans.' "'Well, get aboard,' says the king. "'Hold on a minute. "'My servant'll help you with them bags. "'Jump out and help the gentleman, Adolphus.' "'Meaning me, I see.' i done so, and then we all three started on again. "'The young chap was mighty thankful, "'said it was tough work toting his baggage such weather. "'He asked the king where he was going, "'and the king told him he'd come down the river "'and landed at the other village this morning, "'and now he was going up a few mile "'to see an old friend on the farm up there. "'The young fella says, "'When I first see you, I says to myself, "'It's Mr. Wilkes, sure.' and he come mighty near getting here in time. But then I says again, no, I reckon it ain't him, or else he wouldn't be a-paddling up the river. You ain't him, are you? Uh, No, my name's Blodgett, Alexander Blodgett, Reverend Alexander Blodgett, I suppose I must say, as I'm one of the Lord's poor servants. But still, I'm just as able to be sorry for Mr. Wilkes for not arriving in time all the same, if he's missed anything by it, which I hope he hasn't. Well, he don't miss any property by it, because he'll get that all right. But he's missed seeing his poor brother Peter die, which he mayn't mind. Nobody can tell as to that. But his brother would have give anything in the world to see him before he die. Never talked about nothing else all these three weeks. Hadn't seen him since they was boys together. And had never seen his brother William at all. That's the deep and dumb one. William ain't more than 30 or 35. Peter and George were the only ones that come out here. George was the married brother. Him and his wife both died last year. Harvey and William's the only ones that's left now. And, as I was saying, they haven't got here in time. Did anybody send them word? Oh, yes, a month or two ago, when Peter was first took, because Peter said then that he sort of felt like he weren't going to get well this time. You see, he was pretty old, and George's girls was too young to be much company for him, except Mary Jane, the red-headed one and so he was kinder lonesome after George and his wife died and didn't seem to care much to live. He most desperately wanted to see Harvey, and William too for that matter, because he was one of them kind that can't bear to make a will. He left a letter behind for Harvey, and said he told in it where his money was hid and how he wanted the rest of the property divided up so George's girls would be all right, for George didn't leave nothing. And that letter was all they could get him to put a pen to. "'Why do you reckon Harvey don't come?' where does he live? Oh, he lives in England, Sheffield, preaches there, hasn't ever been in this country. He hasn't had too much time, and besides, he mightn't have got the letter at all, you know. And too bad, too bad he couldn't have lived to see his brothers, poor soul. You go to Orleans, you say? Yes, but that ain't only part of it. I'm going in a ship next Wednesday for Rio Janeiro, where my uncle lives. Well, it's a pretty long journey, "'But it'll be lovely. "'Wished I was a-going. "'Is Mary Jane the oldest? "'How old is the others? "'Well, Mary Jane's nineteen, and "'Susan's fifteen, "'and Joanna's about fourteen. "'That's the one that gives herself "'to good works and has a hair-lip. "'Poor things, "'to be left alone in the cold world so. "'Well, they could be worse off. "'Old Peter had friends, "'and they ain't gonna let them "'come to no harm. "'There's Hobson, "'the Baptist preacher, "'and Deacon Lot Hovey, "'and Ben Rucker, and Abner Shackelford, and Levi Bell, the lawyer, and Dr. Robinson and their wives, and the widow Bartley, and, well, there's a lot of them. But these are the ones that Peter was thickest with and used to write about sometimes when he wrote home, so Harvey'll know where to look for friends when he gets here. Well, the old man went on asking questions till he'd just fairly emptied that young fellow, blamed if he didn't acquire about everybody and everything in that blessed town, and all about the Wilkeses, and about Peter's business which was a tanner, and about George's, which was a carpenter, and about Harvey's, which was a dissentering minister, and so on and so on. Then he says, "'What did you want to walk all the way up to the steamboat for?' "'Because she's a Big Orleans boat, and I was afeard she mightn't stop there. "'When they're deep, they won't stop for a hail. A Cincinnati boat will, but this is a St. Louis one.' Was Peter Wilkes well off? Oh, yes, pretty well off. He had houses and land— and it's reckoned he left three or four thousand in cash hit up somehers. When did you say he died? I didn't say, but it was last night. Funeral tomorrow, likely. Yes, about middle of the day. Well, it's all terrible sad, but we've all got to go one time or another. So what we want to do is to be prepared. Then we're all right. Yes, sir, it's the best way. Ma used to always say that. When we struck the boat, she was about done loading, and pretty soon she got off. The king never said nothing about going aboard, so I lost my ride after all. When the boat was gone, the king made me paddle up another mile to a lonesome place, and then he got ashore and says, Now hustle back right off and fetch the duke up here and the new carpet bags, and if he's gone over to t'other side, go over there and get him, and tell him to get himself up regardless. Shove along now. I see what he was up to. "'but I never said nothing, of course. "'When I got back with the Duke, we hid the canoe. "'And then they sat down on a log, "'and the King told him everything, "'just like the young fellow had said it, "'every last word of it. "'And all the time he was a-doing it, "'he tried to talk like an Englishman, "'and he done it pretty well, too, for a slouch. "'I can't imitate it, and so I ain't a-gonna try, "'but he'd really done it pretty good. And "'Then he says, "'How are you on the deaf and dumb, Bilgewater?' Well, "'The Duke said leave him alone for that.' said he had played a deaf and dumb person on the histrionic boards. So then they waited for a steamboat. About the middle of the afternoon, a couple of little boats come along, but they didn't come from high enough up the river. But at last, there was a big one, and they hailed her. She sent out her yawl, and we went aboard, and she was from Cincinnati. And when they found out we only wanted to go four or five mile, they was a booming mad and gave us a cussin' and said they wouldn't land us. But the king was calm. He says, if gentlemen can afford to pay a dollar a mile apiece to be took on and put off in a yawl, a steamboat can afford to carry him, can it? So they softened down and said it was all right. And when we got to the village, they yawled us ashore. About two dozen men flocked down when they see the yawl are coming. And when the king says, can any of you gentlemen tell me where Mr. Peter Wilkes lives? They give a glance at one another and nodded their heads as much as to say, what I tell you? Then one of them says, kind of soft and gentle, I'm sorry, sir, but the best we can do is to tell you where he did live yesterday evening. Sudden as winking, the ordinary old credder went all to smash and fell up against the man and put his chin on his shoulder and cried down his back and says, Alas, alas, our poor brother gone, and we never got to see him. Oh, it's too, too hard. Then he turns around blubbering and makes a lot of idiotic signs to the duke on his hands and blamed if he didn't drop a carpet bag and bust out a-crying. If they weren't the beatenest lot, them two frauds, that ever I struck. Well, the men gathered around and sympathized with him and said all sorts of kind things to them and carried their carpet bags up the hill for them and let them lean on them and cry and told the king all about his brother's last moments and the king he told it all over again on his hands to the duke. "'and both of them took on about that dead tanner "'like they'd lost the twelve disciples. "'Well, if ever I struck anything like it, I'm a nigger. "'It was enough to make a body ashamed of the human race.'" Chapter 25 The news was all over town in two minutes, and you could see the people tearing down on the run from every which way, some of them putting on their coats as they come. Pretty soon we was in the middle of a crowd, and the noise of the tramping was like a soldier march. The windows and dooryards was full, and every minute somebody would say over a fence, "'Is it them?' And somebody trotting along with the gang would answer back and say, "'You bet it is!' When we got to the house, the street in front of it was packed, and the three girls was standing in the door. Mary Jane was red headed, but that don't make no difference. She was most awful beautiful, and her face and her eyes was all lit up like glory." and she was so glad her uncles was come. The king, he spread his arms, and Mary Jane, she jumped for them, and the hair-lip jumped for the duke, and there they had it. Everybody, most leastways women, cried for joy to see them meet again at last and have such good times. Then the king, he hunched the duke private. I see him do it. And then he looked around and see the coffin over in the corner on two chairs. So then him and the duke, with a hand across each other's shoulder and t'other hand to their eyes, "'Walk slow and solemn over there, "'everybody dropping back to give them room, "'and all the talk and noise stopping, "'people saying shh, "'and all the men taking their hats off "'and drooping their heads "'so you could have heard a pinfall. "'And when they got there, "'they bent over and looked in the coffin "'and took one sight, "'and then they bust out a crying "'so you could have heard them to Orleans most, "'and then they put their arms around each other's necks "'and hung their chins over each other's shoulders, "'and then for three minutes or maybe four, I never seen two men leak the way they done, and mind you, everybody was doing the same, and the place was that damp I never see anything like it. Then one of them got on one side of the coffin, and t'other on t'other side, and they kneeled down and rested their foreheads on the coffin, and led on to pray all to themselves. Well, when it come to that, it worked the crowd like you never see anything like it, and everybody broke down and went to sobbing right out loud, the poor girls too. And every woman nearly went up to the girls without saying a word and kissed them solemn on the forehead and then put their hand on their head and looked up toward the sky with the tears running down and then busted out and went off sobbing and swabbing and give the next woman a show. I never see anything so disgusting. Well, by and by, the king, he gets up and comes forward a little and works himself up and slobbers out a speech. "'all full of tears and flapdoodle "'about it's being a sore trial "'for him and his poor brother "'to lose the diseased "'and to miss seeing diseased alive "'after the long journey of 4,000 mile. "'But it's a trial that's sweetened "'and sanctified to us "'by this dear sympathy "'and these holy tears. "'And so he thanks them out of his heart "'and out of his brother's heart "'because out of their mouths they can't, "'words being too weak and cold "'and all that kind of rotten slush, "'till it was just sickening. "'And then he blubbers out a pious "'goody-goody-amen,' and turns himself loose and goes to cryin' fit to bust. And the minute the words were out of his mouth, somebody over in the crowd struck up the doxologer, and everybody joined in with all their might, and it just warmed you up and made you feel as good as church lettin' out. Music is a good thing, and after all that soul butter and hogwash, I never see it freshen up things so, and sound so honest and bully. Then the king begins to work his jaw again, and says how him and his nieces would be glad if a few of the main principal friends of the family would take supper here with them this evening, and help set up with the ashes of the diseased, and says if his poor brother laying yonder could speak, he knows who he would name, for they was names that was very dear to him, and mentioned often in his letters. And so he will name the same, to wit, as follows. These, Reverend Mr. Hobson, and Deacon Lot Hovey, and Mr. Ben Rucker, and Abner Shackelford, and Levi Bell, and Dr. Robinson, and their wives, and the widow Bartley. Reverend Hobson and Dr. Robinson was down to the end of town a-hunting together. That is, I mean the doctor was shipping a sick man to t'other world, and the preacher was pintin' him right. Lawyer Bell was away up to Louisville on business, but the rest was on hand, and so they all come and shook hands with the king and thanked him and talked to him. And then they shook hands with the duke and didn't say nothing, but just kept a smiling and bobbing their heads like a of sap heads whilst he made all sorts of signs with his hands and said, goo-goo, 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 all the time, like a baby that can't talk. So the king, he bladdered along and managed to inquire about pretty much everybody and dog in town by his name and mentioned all sorts of things that happened one time or another in the town or to George's family or to Peter. And he always let on that Peter wrote him the things, but that was a lie. He got every blessed one of them out of that young flathead that we canoed up to the steamboat. Then Mary Jane, she fetched the letter her father left behind, and the king, he read it out loud and cried over it. It gave the dwelling house and three thousand dollars, gold, to the girls, and it gave the tan yard, which was doing a good business, along with some other houses and land worth about seven thousand, and three thousand dollars in gold to Harvey and William, and told where the six thousand cash was hid down cellar. So these two frauds said they'd go and fetch it up and have everything square and above board and told me to come with a candle. We shut the cellar door behind us and when they found the bag, they spilt it out on the floor and it was a lovely sight. All them yaller boys? My, the way the king's eyes did shine. He slaps the duke on the shoulder and says, Oh, this ain't bully or nothing. Oh, no, I reckon not. Why, Bilgy, it beats the none such, don't it? The duke allowed it did. They pawed the yaller boys and sifted them through their fingers and let them jingle down on the floor. And the king says, It ain't no use talking. Being brothers to a rich dead man and representatives of furrin heirs that's got left is the line for you and me, Bilge. This year comes from trustin' to providence. It's the best way in the long run. I've tried em all, and there ain't no better way. Most everybody would have been satisfied with the pile and took it on trust, But no, they must count it. So they counts it, and it comes out $415 short, says the king. "Durn him. I wonder what he done with the $415. They worried over that a while and ransacked all around for it. Then the duke says, Well, he was a pretty sick man, and likely he made a mistake. I reckon that's the way of it. The best way is to let it go and keep still about it. We can spare it. Oh, shucks, yes, we can spare it. I don't care nothing about that. It's the count I'm thinking about. We want to be awful square and open and above board here, you know. We want to lug this here money upstairs and count it before everybody. Then there ain't nothing suspicious. But when the dead man says there's $6,000, you know, we don't want to... Hold on, says the Duke. Let's make up the deficit. And he begun to haul out yaller boys out of his pocket. It's a most amazing good idea, Duke. You have got a rattlin' clever head on you, says the king. Blessed if the old nun such ain't a heppin' us out again, and he begun to haul out yaller jackets and stack them up. It most busted them, but they made up six thousand clean and clear. Say, says the Duke, I got another idea. Let's go upstairs and count this money, and then take and give it to the girls. Good land, Duke, let me hug you. It's the most dazzlin' idea at ever a man struck you have certainly got the most astonishing head I ever see. Oh, this is the boss dodge. There ain't no mistake about it. Let em fetch along their suspicions now if they want to. This'll lay em out when we got upstairs. Everybody gathered around the table, and the king he counted it and stacked it up three hundred dollars in a pile, twenty elegant little piles. Everybody looked hungry at it and licked their chops. Then they raked it into the bag again, and I see the king begin to swell himself up for another speech. He says, "Friends, all, my poor brother that lays yonder has done generous by them that's left behind in the vale of sorrows. He has done generous by these year, poor little lambs that he loved and sheltered, and that's left fatherless and motherless. Yes, and we that knowed him knows that he would a done more generous by em if he hadn't been afear o woundin his dear William and me." Now, wouldn't he? There ain't no question about it in my mind. Well, then, what kind of brothers would it be that stand in the way at such a time? And what kind of uncles would it be that rob, yes, rob, such poor sweet lambs as these that he loved so at such a time? If I know William, and I think I do, he—well, I'll just ask him. He turns around and begins to make a lot of signs to the Duke with his hands— and the duke, he looks at him stupid and leather-headed a while. Then all of a sudden he seems to catch his meaning and jumps for the king, goo-gooing with all his might for joy, and hugs him about fifteen times before he lets up. Then the king says, I note it. I reckon that'll convince anybody the way he feels about it. Here, Mary Jane, Susan, Joanna, take the money. Take it all. It's the gift of him that lays yonder, cold but joyful. Mary Jane, she went for him, Susan and the hair lip went for the duke, and then such another hugging and kissing I never see yet. And everybody crowded up with tears in their eyes, and most shook the hands off them frauds, saying all the time, You dear good souls, how lovely, how could you? Well then, pretty soon all hands got to talking about the diseased again, and how good he was, and what a loss he was, and all that. And before long, a big iron-jawed man worked himself in there from outside and stood a-listening and looking and not saying anything, and nobody saying anything to him either, because the king was talking and they was all busy listening. The king was saying, in the middle of something he'd started in on, they being particular friends of the diseased. That's why they're invited here this evening. But tomorrow we want all to come, everybody. For he respected everybody. He liked everybody. And so it's fitting that his funeral orgies should be public. And so he went a-mooning on and on, liking to hear himself talk, and every little while he fetched in his funeral orgies again, till the duke he couldn't stand it no more. So he writes on a little scrap of paper, Obsequies, you old fool, and folds it up and goes to goo-gooing and reaching it over people's heads to him. The king, he reads it and puts it in his pocket and says, Poor William, afflicted as he is, his heart's all his right. Asks me to invite everybody to come to the funeral. Wants me to make them all welcome. But he needn't to worry. It was just what I was at. Then he weaves along again, perfectly calm, and goes to dropping in his funeral orgies again every now and then, just like he done before. And when he done it the third time, he says, I say orgies, not because it's the common term, because it ain't. Obsequies being the common term, but because orgies is the right term. Obsequies ain't used in England no more now. It's gone out. We say orgies now in England. Orgies is better because it means the thing you're after most exact. It's a word that's made out in Greek, orgo, outside, open, abroad. And the Hebrew, jesum, to plant, cover up, hence inter. So you see, funeral orgies is an open or public funeral. He was the worst I ever struck. Well, the iron-jawed man, he laughed right in his face. Everybody was shocked. Everybody says, Why, doctor? And Abner Shackleford says, Why, Robinson, hain't you heard the news? This is Harvey Wilkes. The king, he smiled eager and shoved out his flapper and says, Is it my brother's poor, dear, good friend and physician? I... Keep your hands off me, says the doctor. You talk like an Englishman, don't you? It's the worst imitation I ever heard. "'You, Peter Wilkes's brother. You're a fraud. That's what you are.' "'Well, how they all took on. They crowded around the doctor and tried to quiet him down, and tried to explain to him and tell him how Harvey'd showed in forty ways that he was Harvey, and knowed everybody by name, and the names of the very dogs, and begged and begged him not to hurt Harvey's feelings and the poor girl's feelings and all that. But it weren't no use.' He stormed right along and said any man that pretended to be an Englishman and couldn't imitate the lingo no better than what he did was a fraud and a liar. The poor girls was hanging to the king and crying, and all of a sudden the doctor up and turns on them. He says, I was your father's friend, and I'm your friend, and I warn you as a friend, and an honest one that wants to protect you and keep you out of harm and trouble. To turn your backs on that scoundrel and have nothing to do with him, the ignorant tramp, with his idiotic Greek and Hebrew as he calls it. He is the thinnest kind of an imposter, has come here with a lot of empty names and facts which he picked up somewheres, and you take them for proofs and are helped to fool yourself by these foolish friends here who ought to know better. Mary Jane Wilkes, you know me for your friend and for your unselfish friend, too. Now listen to me. Turn this pitiful rascal out. I beg you to do it. Will you? Mary Jane straightened herself up, and, my, but she was handsome. She says, "'Here is my answer.' She hove up the bag of money and put it in the king's hands and says, "'Take this $6,000 and invest for me and my sisters any way you want to, and don't give us no receipt for it.' Then she put her arm around the king on one side, and Susan and the hair lip done the same on the other. Everybody clapped their hands and stomped on the floor like a perfect storm, whilst the king held up his head and smiled proud. The doctor says, All right, I wash my hands of the matter, but I warn you all that a time's a-comin' when you're gonna feel sick whenever you think of this day. And away he went. All right, doctor, says the king, kinda mocking him. We'll try and get him to send for you, which made them all laugh, and they said it was a prime good hit. This presentation is dedicated by Gordon W. Draper to all of those who will enjoy this Mark Twain masterpiece.